Good morning. Happy Sabbath. We are delighted that you have come once again as we start closing down our study in the book of Genesis. Today, as we think about reunions and as we think about the possibility of reconciliation, that possibility that Christ has called us to, I would simply ask that you pray with me, and that as you're praying, you ask God to open your heart and maybe your mind to some people with whom you must make peace. So join me in offering a word of prayer. God, we are delighted that you have come as the one who reconciles us to the Father. But that act of reconciliation also opens the possibility for us to make peace with one another. And so amidst the strife and the tension, in the middle of conflict and disagreement, we ask that you give us the courage to be peacemakers. Bring to our mind those whom we must make peace with. That we then may be called daughters and sons of God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Joseph, the prince of Egypt, and Joseph, the pastor of Loma Linda. How are you today, Joey? I'm doing well. It's summer. It's um, lots of fun and lots of adventure with family. And so, yeah, and I, I love this story. This is one of my favorite sections of, of scripture because it, it allows, it gives me hope that mm -hmm. With all the conflict, all the strife that's swirling around in our world today, that reconciliation and healing is possible. Mm -hmm. Even when there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of wrong that's been done, it's possible. So I love this, love this passage. And it's, it's reconciliation that happens, strangely enough, at a table. Mm -hmm. And today um, we are celebrating communion here in our, our local church. And mm -hmm. so if you tune into one of our services, you will undoubtedly see uh, that sacrament of communion being performed. And so I think I think there's a lot to say within the Christian faith about mm -hmm. this concept, right, of reconciliation that happens through a meal. Mm -hmm. And whether that's a literal meal or the spiritual blood and body of Christ, reconciliation, again, is made possible. And it's really powerful, like you're saying, that at the beginning of the story, we're already having that mm -hmm. occur as Joseph is reconciled to his family. So I want to push us then, Joey, to, to think a little bit about um, chapter 42. Mm. And we, we just scratched the surface um, last week. But it's, it's this really interesting story. Um, and so you know what's happening uh, Joseph's siblings go down to Egypt mm. 
in order to buy grain. And the act of going down isn't just an act, and you mentioned this a little bit uh, in our conversation last week, it's not just the act of geographically moving. Mm. Um, it's also this act of, there's this spiritual act of submission that is kind of interwoven with the concept of going down. And so these brothers who have up to this point been so concerned with maintaining mm. their status and their pride now are forced by hunger to go down into Egypt. How is it then that we as Christians can look at the act of relinquishing pride or maybe even practicing the spiritual discipline of submission mm. as a way in which God grows us? Yeah. I mean, submission, you find that throughout Scripture, right? Um, we are constantly... Um, shown how the people of God, that what what God needs from them most is not their talent or their their ability or even their creative ideas, mm. although God makes use of all of those things. But at the heart of it, what he needs is someone who's willing to submit mm -hmm. to him, right? So obedience and the word obey is repeated throughout scripture, not because God is some kind of taskmaster, but it is a realization that we as humans are subservient to mm -hmm. our creator and what we only are able to achieve our true potential and who we are supposed to be if we are willing to submit be in submission with that relationship with god and joseph has learned the hard way that mm. that submission right we we went through joseph's journey of submission and now it seems like the brothers are now going on that same mm. journey um, we saw a little bit also in the story of Judah that that Judah mm -hmm. and Tamar, we had a brief interlude that we see the change that's happening, already happening in Judah's heart there. And it comes out even more strongly in this passage. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's describing that. I love how you said that they're going down into Egypt to to submit. Wow. Yeah. So they go down, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this act of submission whether it be compulsory or not, mm. is occurring. And when they get there, they are, they are accused. Mm. They're accused yeah. of being spies. They're mm. accused of coming to try and see where the kingdom is weak, mm. how one can plunder the, these granaries. We've often dealt with this idea of truth or of being falsely accused mm. as currency. Mm. And I find it so interesting that in a time where truth is considered something that is subjective, and when people utilize or manipulate the truth in order to serve their own narratives, mm. our initial reaction is very much the same that the brothers have. If mm. you hear a narrative about you that is not true, mm. your initial reaction is to push back and yeah. engage in that narrative and point out how mm. and where there are factual inaccuracies in the narrative. Yeah. Is that, isn't that, though, a waste of time and energy mm. to engage with someone that is purposefully twisting a narrative in order to serve your goal, some the goals that they have already been established by them. 
Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, it's human instinct to get a little bit defensive, right? When someone says something about you that's totally false, you want to be able to say, no, that's not who I am. That's not my intentions. You're reading. And your hope is that they will take that and change their mind. But like you pointed out, whether they it's because they have um, they have their own agenda already or they're just very caught up in their viewpoint, defensiveness rarely gets results or the results that we want, mm-hmm. right? So then how, how, what is a better way of confronting it, confronting situations where someone releases a false narrative mm-hmm. about us? I think you're right. I think defensiveness only calcifies the mm. situation. It makes you dig into your previously held position. Yeah. And when you try and counteract that with facts, there's a really interesting thing mm. that happens, which is, I don't know if you've seen this phenomenon occurring even now in the present day where we try to counter out, counter attack, or maybe even counter argue points by pointing to facts. And the only thing that happens is the people that we're conversing with become more emboldened and more entrenched in their mm. positions. I think, I think the question then becomes not what is the narrative, but what's behind the narrative. Mm. And it seems like the brothers, something's changed. Mm. Because whether we don't whether we agree or we don't agree theologically with the rationale that they come up with mm. for this narrative to happen, for Joseph to accuse them of of being spies, they're at least trying to look behind the narrative mm. and to actually tease out what the real issue is, and yeah. and that requ- that requires maturity. It requires humility. Above all, it requires the capacity to let go of your need to prove that, 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 like you said, that that's not who you are. And the brothers are doing that. And so mm. they dig behind that and they say, see, this is God punishing us wow. for what we've done to Joseph. Yeah, so they instead of reaching immediately for defensiveness and pointing out all the things that are wrong, which they do a little bit. They say, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food in verse 10. We're all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men and not spies. There is a little bit of defense there, but as the story progress progresses, um, you know, in verse seven, uh, 21, um, they say to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. Mm-hmm. That's why this distress has come upon us. So uh, are you pointing out that that, actually they take time to reflect and they realize that what they've done, that they, they're trying to take some kind of ownership mm-hmm. of the situation that they're in. They're not just blaming it on um, an unreasonable governor. Mm-hmm. They're not blaming it on God and saying, God, you are a terrible God, unjust God for punishing us for something that we haven't done. They, they actually look to see what responsibility they hold for their current mm-hmm. predicament and start to take ownership mm-hmm. of that, it seems. Yeah, that's that's them actually trying to find out what is the driving force behind the narrative. And mm-hmm. often, I think we need to pause and resist this 
very, as you mentioned, innate desire to defend ourselves and try to ask ourselves, what is prompting this person to construct this narrative? Mm. What are the what is this person really afraid? Mm. False narratives are, are often linked to fear. And so if we don't take time to understand what is driving that fear, then we're going to continue debating with people that have no interest mm. in debating. Yeah. So trying to not only understand ourselves then, but also understand the other mm -hmm. person, understand why why they're so adamant about this viewpoint. Try to, I, I remember, I, I don't remember who said it, but something, a statement that has stuck with me when it, whenever I'm in conflict with someone is when you start to get offended, get curious, mm -hmm. right? To try to get curious about what is it, what is it that's driving this behavior? Like you said, what are the fears? What are the false narratives or what are the narratives? Um, what's in their mind? Try to understand where they're coming from. And that takes a word that we've talked about a lot, um, which is empathy, mm. right? The willingness to empathize mm -hmm. with the other person. And in this scenario, it may or may not be because you care about the other person, but you do need to have empathy in order to try to understand mm. them, right? So this prince then who is at least in the narrative, he seems to be separated mm. from the brothers. The language there, right? Um, the brothers go back to speaking their native tongue and they feel like they're safe because yeah. they see that Joseph is using an interpreter. There's this chasm that has opened up. And instead of bridging the chasm, what you have is kind of this idea of loss driving the story. Mm brothers go back to Egypt. On the way, they find out that their silver hasn't been returned, has been returned. And instead of going back, they decide to, you know, cut their losses. Simeon is left in Egypt mm. and now they go back to their father. Mm. And I, I kind of want to just, they linger a little bit over verses 37 and 38. Mm. Um, as they go back uh, to Jacob and they start recounting the narrative. Verse 37, then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Speaking of Benjamin, mm. entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. My brother, his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave mm. in sorrow. That was heartbreaking to read this week. Yeah, His brother is dead and he is the only one left. Simeon is in Egypt in prison. There's nine others that are there surrounding, mm. but they don't count. <laughs> um, all that counts is Benjamin yeah. and Joseph. I find that this is, this is an issue that I have, maybe not with people, mm. but with what I consider my priorities. I become so single-mindedly devoted to something mm. and I invest all my energy mm. and my time, my affection, 
that I forget that there are other things. There are other things that also require something from us. And while being single-minded helps us, whether it's relationally or professionally or individually, it helps us. There always is the danger that when we become hyper-vigilant and hyper-focused on something, we do so at the detriment that other of other things that are also valuable. That's so true. It's so true. And I'm sure all of us can think of at least some times when we've done that, when we've gotten so, like you said, hyper-vigilant about one thing to the exclusion of others, right? Whether it's our job and then we hurt our family mm-hmm. or it's it's a cause or it's one child or two mm-hmm. children, in, as in Jacob's case, over the other children. Yeah, you know, we've been I've been focusing, as I read this, I, I focused it as the story between the reconciliation between uh, Joseph and his brothers, which I think it still is. But you're pointing out something very powerful. There is a journey that Jacob mm-hmm. seems to be on as well. Because underlying this fracture between the brothers um, is the fracture that Jacob has also brought into this relationship, mm-hmm. one that he never fully healed from with his brother, mm-hmm. right? Or being um, being broken apart from Esau, they they never really fully reconcil- reconciled. You see that beautiful moment in their story last week when they they talk and they you know they seem to hug and embrace each other and accept one another. But then they go their separate ways, right? And they only meet again when their uh, their father mm-hmm. passes away, and then they go their separate ways again. There is no continued relationship there. You see that between Isaac and Ishmael in the generation before, Abraham and Lot, mm-hmm. the generation. Th- this fracture has been running through the family for generations, and like we talked about this, it's a generational sin. Mm-hmm. It's running through this family, fracturing, fracturing them apart until we finally get to Joseph mm-hmm. and his brothers. And the question is, is that fracturing going to happen again? Are we going to continue to see that in the people mm-hmm. of God? Right? And, and what drives, again, that fracture? What drives the schism that is created? Mm-hmm. And whether it's in a family or in an institution, a church, an organization, I'm sure we've all been part of places and mm-hmm. situations, circumstances that are fractured. Mm-hmm. And what is driving mm-hmm. these fractures? And there is a common thread as I was reading and thinking and just praying about this this story that I think you're absolutely right in noting that it's extremely moving because it has reconciliation woven throughout the whole tale. It seems like these fractures, these schisms are created because we have an inability to confront the Mm -hmm. lies that we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. These narratives that we construct that are untrue and that are not based on anything, whether it be experiential or factual. So the brothers are going to have to work this out between each other. Mm -hmm. And Jacob, as you're mentioning, is going to have to work out this false narrative Because Benjamin isn't all that's left. Mm-hmm. Joseph is alive. Yeah. Um, and you, you were mentioning uh, Jacob before and his brother Esau when they hug and they reconcile and then they go their separate ways and they're o- they only come together um, 
when Isaac dies. And even the text, as I, as you were talking, I'm kind of remembering the story. The text says that Jacob was afraid for his life when his father when his father would die. Mm. Because he kept carrying this guilt. He mm -hmm. kept telling himself this false story that this reconciliation wasn't true, that it that it wasn't going to happen. A lot telling himself this false story that the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah were better uh, than to live in Hebron with Abraham. So you have these ideas that are driven by a lie that continue appearing, and those lies feed into these stories that we tell ourselves. And ultimately, these stories that are pregnant with the lies end up causing schisms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love how you said that. We have this inability to confront the lies that we tell each other, tell ourselves. Um, these lies that, that really form the narrative on the basis of which we have mm. the relationship. And we see this, I mean, we can see this all the time, especially, especially in families, mm -hmm. right? Because we start to build these narratives about the other person, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's in a marriage and we think, oh my goodness, Oh, we're told to never use the word never, right? Mm -hmm. Or always. But those those are a part of the narrative. Like, oh, she never she never um, cleans the dishes, mm. or he he always leaves his laundry on mm -hmm. the floor, or he doesn't care, and that means that he doesn't care about my time, right? There's these narratives that we. It's so easy to go through these cycles. We see one little behavior and then we extrapolate mm -hmm. a whole story from them. And then that story defines our behavior to the other person. And unless, like you say, we take the time to actually confront those narratives in ourselves, the relationship will continue to fracture and fracture. Mm -hmm. I also see that it's so much easier to, to do that to allow those narratives to def define us and to eventually, when those relation narratives define the relationship, to walk away from mm -hmm. the conflict. It's so much harder to work, do the hard work of reconciliation because it requires, like you said, examining ourselves. It requires us having, having empathy with the other mm -hmm. person. It's a lot of work. So I know there are so many times where it just feels like it's just easier to walk away. Mm -hmm. You know, hopefully not so in a marriage, but with friendships, with with um, coworkers, it's so much easier to just write them off and say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Mm. It's too much work, and we walk away. And we see that over and over again in this the story of the family of God, the God, the family that God has called, and yet we see this fracturing over and over again, saying, "You're not worth my time. You're not worth the effort." And it's easier for me to walk away. And you understand why there's that temptation to mm. walk away. Because it's a, the act of engaging someone that is married to a narrative that we consider false mm. is exhausting. <sighs> just think about the example that you just gave. You never wash the dishes. Mm. Every fiber in your body wants to react mm. and respond by saying, actually, I do wash the dishes. Last Tuesday, as a matter of fact, mm. we ate spaghetti and I washed the dishes. Mm. 
But you see, when we get su- when we allow these false narratives to suck us in, mm. what ends up happening is we are drained of all our energy and all our capacity for empathy in our ability to converse. Mm. Because now we've engaged this narrative that is false instead of actually asking, what is the emotion mm. that is driving the narrative? So you mentioned, Joey, it's easy to do it in homes. It's easy to do it in friendships. Sadly, it's also easy to do it with churches. Mm. And so you think about the biggest schism that the Christian church had over a thousand years ago, Mm -hmm. driven by a false narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, The delegation from Rome was interested in securing help uh, for uh, its crumbling empire from the empire at Byzantium. And so they go to the Hagia Sophia in Turkey, in Constantinople, and they attempt to negotiate that. Uh, The patriarch of the Eastern Church at that point also doesn't want to be controlled by Rome, and so they start quibbling over some minuscule ideas on Christology. And what happens at uh, Hagia Sophia is that the the papal envoys excommunicate the patriarch of the Eastern Church, and the patriarch of the Eastern Church excommunicates the papal envoys, and by the end, the people that are attending Mass don't know who to take communion from. Mm -hmm. The, The history books will say that that issue was an issue on christology but it really wasn't mm. it was a, it was an issue on po- about politics and mm. power that was the real narrative same thing happens 500 years later right in germany you have luther that is trying to assuage his guilt in mm. that idea that he is not good enough and so that's what's driving this this Protestant Re- Reformation and his desire to bring the mm-hmm. church more in line with what he would consider scripture. But the church at that point is very interested, interested in maintaining a monopoly over heaven. And so mm-hmm. it becomes this issue of reform and counter-reform when at the heart of it, the question is, how are we saved and how do we get into heaven? Do we get into heaven based on the merits of Christ or based on the merits of membership in a church? Mm. Adventism doesn't know anything about schisms. <laughs> and so when when I was thinking about these false narratives, Joey, my mind went to uh, the general conference that just ended. Yeah, And if our friends out there have read uh, some of the articles or some of the narratives that have been put out there by both wings of the church. It almost seems like we're talking about two different churches now. Mm. We're talking about the church in North America, the church in the South Pacific, the church in Western Europe, and then the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's these very clear now uh, separations between these two ways of understanding Adventism. And the problem, I think, is that it's also being fed by a false narrative. Mm. Because at the heart of Adventist eschatology is this issue that states that before Christ comes, 
we need to make sure that we wash our robes and that we buy refined gold. And so there's going to be the shaking. Mm. And when people whom you love, people who you value, people with whom you share a great deal begin to leave the church over disagreements and the narrative is buttressed by this idea that they, they're going to have to live, leave because of the shaking. What you have there are the seeds for yet another schism. So whether it's a, a marriage that needs to be saved or a church that I'm praying we can keep united, mm -hmm. there's got to be a time and a place where we begin to challenge these false narratives. Wow, that is so powerful. I love the sweep of history that you did in the Christian church to show that we are followers of God, but we are no less likely to break apart than these followers of mm -hmm. God in the book of Genesis were. We repeat that same that same challenge of not challenging our own narratives, giving up on the other person, mm -hmm. being unwilling to do the hard work of reconciliation. And yet that is what Jesus has called us to mm -hmm. do is to be ministers of the of reconciliation. Um, when you talked about um, how a lot of times these issues that broke about the church, we focus on what happened but really what broke about the uh, broke apart the church was not exactly what happened but also why it mm -hmm. happened right it reminds me of what um, psychologist doc, dr mark golston says about arguments he says when you have a conversation or an argument with someone <clears throat> there's always three levels of that argument mm -hmm. what actually happened why it happened and how that makes me feel and he says, a lot of times we focus on what happened. We're always quibbling about the facts. Oh, you did this. No, I did. No, you did this. No, I didn't do that. And we just focus on that surface level about what happened. But that's not what we really care about. What we really care about is why it happened. And more, even more than that, how that made me feel, mm. right? So when, when my husband, right, refuses to, um, conti continues to forget to put his, um, laundry in the laundry hamper. That's an example we just used, right? If if he does that, then we think to ourselves, well, um, why did that happen? Well, he that happens because he he doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about how much extra work it is for me to do that. He it's not important enough for him to do this. And then how does that make me feel? It makes me feel unloved. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel like. It makes me feel like I'm unwanted and unimportant in his life, right? So that, unless that, how that makes me feel is addressed, it doesn't matter if yeah. later on he says, well, actually, actually, I do mostly put it in the, the hamper. You're just picking out the one mm -hmm. time I didn't. That doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the fact of how, how it makes um, the wife feel, right? It doesn't change that fact. And so, so unless we address the the feelings and the why the what really doesn't matter mm -hmm. and yet a lot of times when i see our church our the, the christian church at large the schisms that happen we always focus on that what maybe sometimes we get to the why we hardly talk about the feelings mm -hmm. how that makes us feel and i know that so sounds a little bit touchy feely like is there a, a is there a place for emotions in the church I think that that um, forgets or neglects that kind of attitude neglects the fact that we are emotional mm. beings, 
And most of the time when we make decisions, it's not just based on mm -hmm. facts, but about how those facts make us mm -hmm. feel. And so unless we start to have conversations about the narratives that underlie the facts and how those narratives make us feel, I don't think there's, there's any way we get past the challenges and the difficulties that we're facing as a church. So if we don't do something different, the obituary that will be written about the Adventist church will be that we split over the issue of women's ordination. Mm. And to write that type of obituary is going to be tragic. Mm. It's going to be tragic because it fails to see that women's ordination, important as it is, and the idea that men and women, at least if you have an egalitarian theological framework like we do, and like the Adventist church has traditionally had, are, cre are created and called equally by God. So that's important. But that's not really what is being discussed, is it? Mm. Because what is being discussed, or the why this issue has become so, such a touch point, has been a different way of understanding and viewing Scripture. Mm. And so the second level is it's an interpretive level. Mm. It's a hermeneutical level. And that's important. It's important to ask ourselves the question, if I adopt a particular view of Scripture, ultimately, where does that lead us? Mm. Now, again, to those people that would say that here on the West Coast, we have forgotten what traditional Adventism stands for. Let, let me remind you that the idea of Scripture being a book that has principles and guidelines, but that is nowhere near to perfect, has been traditionally our position. We have been about thought inspiration. We have viewed the Bible as containing everything we need for salvation. Mm -hmm. But the details, we've never quibbled upon. So that's the second layer. But that really isn't what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you're mentioning this idea of emotion. And Joey, I think that for us living in the West, it's very easy to forget and to dismiss those who would disagree with us as theologically backwards or as misogynistic. Mm. Again, I want to affirm all the commitment that we have at this church to complete equality in ministry. But I wouldn't dare call some of my brothers and sisters that are Adventists in other parts of the world misogynists. That's mm. not what the issue is. So let's get down even deeper mm. into this emotional level. When you ask people in the developing world what Christianity has done traditionally, They'll retort with many good things, but there's also been many abuses. Mm. Christianity has also been used as a tool, mm. as a tool to control, as a tool to make you comply, as a tool to strip people of their culture, of their heritage. Wow. And let's be frank, finances and money have also been used as a tool for power. And so what has happened with this faith whom, that we adore and that was born in the Western world is that for a long time in our history, the West dictated to the rest of the world how, what Adventism was 
and how it was going to be practiced. Mm. And that created deep-seated resentment and that deep seed to think that that deep-seated resentment that is righteous can would not play out a hundred years or 50 years later as we're having these theological conversations mm. is to be naive. Mm. So I think reconciliation needs to have two things, Joey, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. It needs to have the ability, as you've mentioned, to recognize the roles that we have played in yeah. crafting these narratives, so taking some responsibility. Mm -hmm. And then reconciliation also requires risk. Mm. It requires risk because when you go to someone and you say, hey, you know what? Let's not kid ourselves. This isn't really about this. It's about something deeper. Mm. And I am deeply sorry for making you feel unloved in the case of the spouse mm. or unheard in the case of the church. Mm. To do that requires a risk, but that's the only path, at mm -hmm. least in my mind, towards true reconciliation. That is so powerful. And that risk often is what keeps us from taking that step, right? I mean, if I'm, if I'm fighting with somebody else, if I'm in an argument with somebody else, and I recognize that, and I have the wherewithal, which I don't always have, <laughs> to recognize, you know, there is some part of this that I own it's a risk to put it put that out there because it feels like what if that person isn't trustworthy what if they latch on that thing and they say the whole thing is my fault mm -hmm. now now i've lost the argument mm -hmm. and i put myself out there it's painful right so that that is a very very hard thing to do and yet only when we are able to do that can healing start to happen i've seen this play out over and over again in 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 my marriage mm -hmm. right um the times the <laughs> few times when I'm able to do that, I see, I mean, it totally changes the conversation. When I start to take ownership of the, the, the role that I've played in the brokenness that has happened, then that's when healing starts to begin. That's when empathy starts to flow both ways. So I, I totally get that. Yeah, that understanding our role and then also putting out that risk. I think to that, I would add one more step. Um, Maybe, maybe even the first step is what we talked about at the very beginning, what you mentioned, listening. Mm. Listening with curiosity, right? Seeking to understand. Seeking to understand mm -hmm. the narratives that people, that the other, that the other party is, is, is living by. Mm. Seeking to understand the emotions that are driving mm. these, these understandings. To not just assume it's because, like you said, because they're misogynistic or because they are just have really poor theology or just making these assumptions about the other instead seeking to understand and take the time to do that because i don't think reconciliation can happen unless we try to understand and i know we've taken a kind of a detour away from um, the text itself but you we see this playing out in this text right I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I completely agree with Joseph's methods here. You know, I don't know if if that was the best way. It did work out for him, but I do see, and and maybe it, it was a growing process. Like all of us, maybe originally he was starting starting with more retribution mm -hmm. than reconciliation, but you do see a change start to happen within Joseph, mm -hmm. and he does seek to try to understand where his brothers are. He doesn't just write them off from the very beginning. Assume. 
that they are just the same horrible people who threw him into, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't write them off from the very beginning. He actually takes the time to figure out where they are and where they're coming from, what narratives are driving them. And the amazing thing that happens is that as he seeks to understand them, Joseph is also changed, mm -hmm. right? We have that poignant moment where the brothers start to realize, to start to vocalize the, that these things are happening because they did this to Joseph and Joseph weeps. weeps and he leaves. Joseph is also changed because he listens. So it just shows that listening is not just about figuring out how do I best argue mm -hmm. the uh, other person into seeing my side? Listening is about self-transformation mm -hmm. and about being the willing to understand and have that understanding maybe change our perspective a bit. Mm. So listening, and Joseph does that, mm -hmm. right? You mentioned it. Then taking responsibility, and mm -hmm. it seems like the brothers are willing to do that. And then that last step, which is taking a risk. Mm -hmm. And everyone in the story risks something. Yeah. Jacob obviously risks losing Benjamin. Mm. Judah risks, um, he says in chapter 43, uh, that he will take upon himself mm -hmm. the safety mm -hmm. of his brother. Yeah. He will take upon, I will take it upon myself. Um, so he takes a risk. In chapter 45, Joseph is going to take a risk. Mm -hmm. He is at that beautiful moment of reconciliation. He mm -hmm. says, I am Joseph. Mm -hmm. Come close to me. I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do mm -hmm. not be angry for yourselves for selling me there because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And so every single one in this story takes a risk because really the narrative isn't that important. Mm. And I find it sometimes so sad, Joey, that we, we make the narrative important. We make these moments uh, where we have taken offense or we have offended someone the center of our lives and we end up engaged in these are in these energy exhausting mm. arguments that don't benefit anyone mm. and what ends up happening is as you mentioned before you you simply defeated anguished and de and depleted you walk away mm -hmm. but there's a bigger issue at stake because there's people dying of hunger. If they don't find a way in these three chapters to mm -hmm. figure it out, they're gonna die. <laughs> and so you can have this conversation about who's right and who's wrong and who has the right theology and who was offended and who was not offended and who was in compliance and out of compliance and in rebellion. You can have those arguments, but in the end, those arguments become Insular, insular and forget the bigger picture and the bigger picture is or we either we solve this or we die because there's so many people out there that are hungry mm -hmm. and we i think we need to do something less less we starve to death wow 
So true. And we see how much God prioritized that, prioritizes mm-hmm. this in the, these chapters. You know, I noticed that in these chapters, the story seems to really slow down. You know, in other chapters, we, we skip years and mm-hmm. decades from chapter to chapter to chapter. Here, it's like it, it really slows down the, the, the narrative and focuses on this interaction between Joseph and his brother, chapter after chapter, so much detail. And it seems like God is saying, this is what's important. You know, what I loved about the, the, um, what the writer of the Sabbath School Quarterly said at the very beginning on, on the Sunday's lesson said, um, this story, a lot of times we focus on Joseph's success, mm-hmm. but it really is about the brother's repentance, mm-hmm. right? It's almost as if God gives Joseph all of this success so that his at some point, repent. yeah, his brothers might repent and the brothers and this family will be reconciled. That's how important this, he like manipulates world events in order for reconciliation to happen between these brothers. It just shows how important reconciliation is to God and how much of a priority it should be to us. And it also, I think, shows us that, and you mentioned this at at the outset, uh, there's one more thing I want to look at before we close, but you talk a little bit at the outset about how easy it is to focus or to become a laser focused on this idea of, well, you never do this and you always do this and let's assign blame. And, um, and you mentioned, I think rightly so, that this just doesn't happen in marriages or in churches or in companies. It happens in the family of God. Mm-hmm. And so there is no community, whether it's your family or your local church or your global church, there is no community that is going to be immunized mm-hmm. against the reality of discord mm-hmm. and that is going to be in unable or unwilling to experience the joys of reconciliation. So the question becomes, are we willing as husbands, as wives, as children, as Seventh-day Adventists, are we willing to engage in the act of reconciliation? That's so true. Conflict is inevitable, but the, what's not inevitable is is discord and um, separation, Mm -hmm. right? We have an opportunity to work through conflict in a way that shows love and reconciliation. I'm reminded of that quote by Martin Luther King Jr. Love is the only force known to man that can turn an enemy Mm -hmm. into a friend. It doesn't always work, but it's the only one that works. And love is the only way that the lies we tell ourselves can be exposed. Mm-hmm. So I wanna, I wanna just finish with this, Joey. Mm-hmm. The brothers go back to Egypt, chapter 45. Yeah. Poignant isn't it how the author decides to close. They told him, speaking, about, uh, speaking to Jacob, Joseph is still alive. Mm-hmm. In fact, he is the ruler of all Egypt. Joseph was stunned, Jacob was stunned. 
he did not believe them. Again, that temptation, right, to believe in false narratives. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carrying him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I am convinced. Hmm. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go see them, see him before I die. We're not going to agree as part of the Adventist family because we've got 20 million members. Hmm. I don't agree. I, I, my family is only four of us and we hardly agree on anything. So I, I don't expect and I don't want to be Pollyannish. I don't think we're going to agree on everything. But I think the spirit of Adventism can be revived. Mm. You know, I, I think the spirit of Adventism can go forth into a world that is hungry mm. and say, we want to see Jesus. And so we're going to invest ourselves in the world. I think that is possible. But the way that is possible is when we start focusing and looking at the carts and the stories Mm. and the testimonies. And what are these carts and these stories and these testimonies? Well, our conservative friends in other parts of the world might disagree with women's ordination, but that's not what Loma Linda University Church is about. We're also about caring for the disenfranchised. We're also about going into the highways and byways and and offering food and care and clothing to people. Would it be possible that we agree on that? Hmm. And maybe we won't be able to agree with friends that are more complementarian in their theology. But would it be possible that we can agree on mission? Mm-hmm. that we can agree that the world is hungry, mm-hmm. that we can see the carts of missionaries from all theological persuasions that go into the world and say, we want to enflesh Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if we see those carts, could it be possible that, as you said, Joey, we start seeing enemies as friends? Wow, that's so powerful. And I love how you ended with this, this passage because you see this shift in the story from using the name Jacob to Israel, Mm -hmm. this covenant name for the people of God, it's almost as if when they're finally, when Jacob finally lets go of that false narrative, when when the family is finally about to become whole again, that's when when they're truly the people of Mm -hmm. God. Can we be the people of God today? We sure hope so. Wherever you are on the theological spectrum, we hope that we can be the people of God. Joey, can you pray? Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you for being a God of reconciliation. Because if you weren't, we would have no hope. We have no way of repairing the brokenness that we've caused in this world, the brokenness we cause every single day. And yet you are not willing to give up on us. You do that hard work of reconciliation when it would be much easier for us for you to just write us off and walk away. You engage in our narratives. You seek to understand us and you help us to reconcile with you. Lord, as your followers, help us to do the same. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, my dear sister, my dear brother, go 
and do likewise. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.